Hello, sweet sisters, and welcome to Cosmic Conceptions, a place where we acknowledge that women are of nature and the stars. My name is Athena, and I'll be your guide as we explore esoteric transmissions on fertility astrology, conscious conceptions, women's health, and more. Here we will not shy away from the radical, the controversial, or the spiritual. So grab your tea, and let's get cosmic. Okay, so today feels like a really big day, so I'm just going to dive into it because I'm actually kind of nervous about this episode. Um, It's going to be really special, I think, because we're going to be getting more into my current personal beliefs and approach to the healing body. And I think it's important that we have this discussion and step away from astrology for a moment because this is the earth based medicine branch of the work that I do and the way in which I kind of view um, healing is not, it's obviously not the way our current allopathic system views the body, but a lot of women uh, come to me from that system. And so it's really just, it's important to me that we're kind of starting to wrap our brains around the same language so that we understand what we're talking about when I talk about things like healing expressions and why I don't believe in infertility as a diagnosis and all of these kinds of things. But the way in which I'm going to introduce these ideas is I'm going to marry um, education with storytelling. So I'm going to take you through my own personal healing journey, which began actually between 10 and 13 years old, um, because it really highlights the different modalities that I have already played with and gone through and teased out, and then how I kind of graduated through all of those different philosophies and entered to the place where I am now. And of course, I I have to preface this by saying I am not any kind of registered or certified or professionally learned um, care provider. I am not giving you medical advice. And I do expect my own um, philosophies to continue to evolve because it is also my personal belief that humans um, are not really owed the privilege of knowing all that there is to know. (laughs) There's this really interesting thing that has seemed to occur in more of the contemporary branch of the scientific community um, in which every time a new development in science unfolds, the, you know, the industry loses its mind and just seems to think that it has it all figured out now. And, you know, this is the truth. And this is what we're, you know, the, the hill that we're going to die on. And, and then that's all there is. And if, of course, if you dissent to that discovery or opinion, then you're labeled a quack and you're dismissed and horrible things are said about you and all of that kind of stuff. I think we know how that game plays out. Um, But something that I really loved about the pre-scientific era, and it's the namesake for this episode, is that before 
you know, the word science was, I believe, even invented, um, the, the, this field of study was actually called um, natural philosophy. So if you just quickly put natural philosophy into a search engine, the first thing that comes up explains that natural philosophy is a field of study and it is the philosophy of nature in its philosophical study of physics, that is nature and the physical universe. It was dominant before the development of modern science. And I just love the term natural philosophy because it has a sort of um, curiosity and playfulness to it that the word science sort of no longer seems to be associated with, even though the whole point of science is to constantly be questioning and testing um, different hypotheses and evolving into new layers of understanding. But whatever. So, so my whole point is that this is where I've arrived at at this point in my journey. And as a um, I suppose, a self-declared natural philosopher, I do expect to continue unfolding into new layers of awareness while also remaining um, humbled enough to understand that as a human in a vast spiritual um and natural world, I will never know all that there is to know about the how and the why of things. And I am perfectly okay with that. It actually um, fills me with a sense of wonder and peace about, about it all. Okay, so before we get into that, Um, Just to let you know, if you want to become a paying supporter of the show, you can now contribute $11 a month through Substack in exchange for the podcast bonus content, monthly Ask Me Anythings, uh, and my very personal, very vulnerable Cosmic Conception Diaries, uh, which you can access through the link in the show notes. I would also like to thank this week Kelsey for being our newest sponsor. Thank you, Kelsey. I was really excited to see your name come through um, and to know that you're here uh, engaging with the work. So yeah, the bonus content for this episode is going to be a little um, bit of a mini roadmap to helping you unpack your commitment to suffering. Okay, so this is going to be helpful for mental health journeys, physical health journeys, emotional health journeys. Um, If you're here because you're in the preconception space and maybe you feel married to an infertility diagnosis or a PCOS diagnosis or whatever it is that you're currently facing, this mini roadmap is going to be helpful for you because whether or not you are consciously aware of it, If you are human in our current culture, you are probably actually in many ways committed to your suffering. And a lot of times when we approach our healing, we don't really talk about this plane, right? It's all about focusing on the physical body and how we can manipulate it into a place of comfort or how we can force it to do the things that we want it to be doing. And we don't really address what the psycho-emotional body is doing to influence the perpetuation of these symptoms or this disease uh, or these outcomes in our lives. So like I said, this is going to be a little bit of a mini roadmap into helping you understand where you might be at at that 
point in your journey. Um, and I'm, I'm particularly inspired. Uh, I created these prompts. It's going to be through journal prompts. I was inspired um, for this by the uh, eight-step recovery method that is something that I actually found in one of my notebooks, we're going to talk about it as I get into my story, but some point along the way, my first encounter with healing through any kind of a spiritual framework came from the eight-step recovery process. So this is ultimately a Buddhist-oriented alternative to the 12-step Alcoholics Anonymous kind of approach. Um, and for some reason, it the, it, the eight step approach really resonated with me. Like I said, we're going to get into that more later. But step two um, of that process involves um, looking at how we create additional suffering in our lives. So essentially how we are responsible for our own suffering and especially the suffering that we claim that we just oh, don't don't want to have to have to live with anymore. So. That was my inspiration for this bonus material. I do think it will be helpful no matter what kind of a healing journey that you're on. Or maybe if you just want to generally improve your life, you know, maybe your health, your health is great. You feel attuned to your fertility or your preconception journey, but you find yourself complaining about things or you don't love your friends or there's an issue in your family and it's just been this chronic ongoing situation that you can't seem to get yourself out of. So this is going to be really helpful for you. It's going to be in the bonus material. You'll be able to find it in the show notes there and it will be accessible for paying subscribers. So just click the link, like and subscribe, all the things. Um, Okay, before I get into the story, just a warning, this episode will definitely have explicit language. There's no way I will not be able to just, it's, it just probably will. So be mindful of little ears nearby if you have, you know, your, your, your protective of that. Um, or if you're not in a place right now where you can hear details about things like self-harm and mental health expressions, then just skip ahead to the chapter where I get more into the teachings on um, healing. Uh, and I will put a timestamp for that in the show notes. Okay, so here we go. We're going to start. We're going to start where my story began, I, I will say it began at 10 years old, which is when I had the most um, vivid memories of working with emotional expressions that were, of course, perfect responses to my life circumstances at that time, but that as being a young child with no proper guidance, didn't know what I was moving through. So at 10 years old, my family moved from Canada, where I had been growing up, to the U.S., uh, which is obviously ex an extremely transitional um, and stressful and even potentially a traumatic experience. Uh, but my, you know, my parents didn't really have the tools to know how to properly um, and ceremonially assist children through that process. So I remember being very excited for the move. But then as soon as we got to the States, uh, well, it was a huge adjustment. Uh, I was I remember being extremely sad, sort of self isolating. I, you know, it created a, a magic friend that I named after my best friend in Montreal, whom I could no longer keep in touch with. 
Um, yeah, and I just generally was struggling with that transition. Uh, also, going from being, you know, a Montessori educated child who was learning half of the school day in French to then coming to an American public school system which just was a radically altering experience. Um, you know, children were eating processed foods I, I had never seen before. I didn't even know what soda was. Not that they don't have these things in Canada, but I the the light our lifestyle there as a family was very um, more European. Uh, and my mom did uh, did a really great job of like keeping whole foods in the house. Uh, my parents, uh, Greek immigrant. Uh, my father's Greek immigrant parents were always around cooking authentic food. Um, like when I say whole food, I mean like whole lambs, like in the house, stuff like that. So it was a really big adjustment to come to the States and I wasn't really uh, prepared for it. And of course, you know, as a young child trying to fit in, you start eating all the things and wanting to wear all the clothes and just generally um, trying to find uh, your place within the community, uh, especially when there is no community centered around family life, right? There's no village at home providing, uh, fulfilling that emotional need for this age group. I think they do say it's around 12 years old where the, um, the influence of the village becomes more important to the child. Uh, that could be a whole other discussion. But anyway, so that, that, that factors into this. And then 13 was really when I started to experience what they would now label depression, right? Um, that I think the transition continued to be very difficult for me. And around this time was when my father essentially abandoned my family with no explanation. And this triggered the collapse of the family unit and ultimately my parents' divorce, which really did a number on my mother. I, I wouldn't say that she was ever the most conscious parent. You know, she did not um, grow up with any of the tools that a lot of us have now. She didn't know how to provide emotional support or vulnerability for my sisters and I um, at a very young age. But then when this transition occurred for my family, uh, things just really started to fall apart. So I witnessed all of this um, unfold. And uh, this was a, in middle school, I believe, is when, you know, 13 years, you're kind of in middle school. Um, so I started uh, cutting around this time. That was really popular when I was growing up. Um, now the trend it's trending in other directions, which we won't get into in this episode. But I started cutting around that time um, and restricting my caloric intake and generally filling my influence with a lot of things like young adult novels about anorexic girls and looking at People magazine of like Mary Kate Olsen, you know, weighing 90 pounds at NYU. <laughs> I think that was actually three years later. I think that was when I was 16. Um, but generally just trying to find a way to express what was happening in my family life. 
Uh, and I really fully see this now looking back at my story. So we're going to talk later towards the end about healing expressions, right? So like when your body is expressing symptoms, it is not a sign that you are sick. It's actually a sign that you are healing. And my story and how I experienced my story really solidified for me that the same goes for mental health expressions, right? So like if a child is cutting themselves. It is not because something is wrong with them. It is not because they have a chemical imbalance. It is not because they need medication. It is because they are expressing and reflecting back to their community the dysfunction within their family. And the needs that the child is trying to meet on their own without having better tools for coping. So a very popular uh, reason why people will self-harm, for example, is that the emotional pain of being with themselves and with their life circumstances is too great to bear. And they don't have the tools to know how to process that pain. And so by by inflicting physical harm on their own body, it helps to distract from the emotional pain or relieve relieve the emotional pain. It's almost like applying counter pressure in labor or something. (laughs) I don't know why that came to mind, but... um, you know, it's like it's like redirecting the energy. Uh, and of course, it's also a cry for help. It's like when you're when you're dancing with depression and self-harm, there's usually this weird thing that happens where you desperately want somebody to see you, but then as soon as somebody does, you just want to die inside and you will do anything to get them to look away. So there's this like strange paradigm happening there where it's like you want help, but you don't want anyone to see you because it's so uncomfortable. Um, And so you're kind of dancing around that dynamic. So, so yeah, so I got pretty deep into focusing on calorie restriction. Um, I guess, again, you would label it anorexia, uh, but I clearly was desperately trying to control, um, find some kind of control in my life. And of course, I perfectly fit the picture um, for the kind of like, you know, it's like upper middle class white girl who gets straight A's, but her family is terribly dysfunctional. And it's it like just manifests in, into this horrific <laughs> eating disorder. Um, it's such a, it's such a picture. So anyway, obviously a perfect response to what I was going through in my life at that time. Uh, and then I learned how to purge, which brought bulimia into my life, which was just the worst n- nightmare the worst living nightmare that I anyone could ever experience. I would never wish it on my worst enemy. It was horrendous, absolutely horrendous. Um, in the beginning, it wasn't so bad because I was very uh, committed to restricting, um, but it gets worse later on, which we'll touch on. But anyway, so in high school, I'm restricting a lot, um, occasionally purging, struggling with self-harm. I was seeing the school therapist, uh, at that time, I don't know what happened to inspire that. Um, 
I actually think I was crying in the bathroom during lunch. And then like a student told somebody, a student told an aide, oh my God, I can't believe I'm remembering this. And then the the aide brought me to the therapist's office. So that's how I was introduced to talk therapy, uh, which was comforting, I suppose, at the time. It was very a strange thing to be witnessed by somebody within a family dynamic in which no witnessing was happening whatsoever. Um, But ultimately, it didn't facilitate any type of healing. Uh, And then what else was probably really notable at this time? Uh, I was introduced to alcohol at 16 years old. Uh, my boyfriend at the time, and I did was I was only in two very committed relationships during high school, uh, so I really didn't start getting into you know abusive sexual sort of behaviors until later. Um, I was quite I'm sure I was quite codependent as well <laughs> with these these poor boyfriends. Um, but anyway. Uh, Yeah, my second uh, serious relationship in high school uh, had a lot of house parties. And so at 16, I was introduced to alcohol, uh, which, of course, was, you know, the springboard that sent me down uh, a path of of excessive drinking, which didn't really get too bad until college. And a, a note about that, because this story is going to contain a lot of various addictions. Um, my philosophy on addiction is that it's not that one is necessarily um, an alcoholic or anorexic or binge eater or a drug addict. These are all various expressions of the root of the problem, which is in addiction itself, which is actually rooted in issues of low self-worth, not having adequate emotional coping mechanisms, childhood trauma, etc., etc., etc. So for me, life was just one big playground of addiction. I didn't I don't necessarily really like identify with any one particular label. Of course, I used to because it was a very lovely way for me to claim something for myself. Um, Again, I think that there are a lot of reflections of this happening in a new way with our current young generation. But again, that's for another episode. So yeah, when I was younger, it was very... um, It felt very, I don't want to say liberating because it obviously wasn't actually liberating. But I think as as a young person who is struggling to achieve an identity and who is struggling to be seen, there is something to being able to claim a diagnosis for yourself. Uh, This was especially a big deal in the eating disorder community because there is a a diagnosis called EDNOS, which stands for eating disorder not otherwise specified which is what I quote unquote had for a majority of my young adult life. And basically what this diagnosis indicates is that you are not um, restrictive enough to be anorexic, but you're also not committed enough to your purging practice to just be straight up bulimic. And sometimes you binge eat, but other times you don't. And essentially, you're just one big hot mess that doesn't deserve a label. And so (laughs) 
they give you Ednos. And then, of course, almost every woman who has been given Ednos feels like she failed anorexia, and it's this big, horrible catastrophe. But do you see how all of these labels really just are giving us identities to play with? Um, and ultimately, an identity becomes something that we choose to live into and feed, which is why a diagnosis of any kind can be a very dangerous thing. Okay, so now I'm, I'm going off on a tangent. So let's get back to the story. So now I'm introduced to alcohol. I'm struggling with anorexia. I'm struggling with bulimia. Um, but at least I'm on track with straight A's to get into a good college, right? <laughs> Because that's what's important. Um, and there, there's so much here that nobody really needs to know about. But, I, you know, there, there, there are so many layers in the family dynamic and the mother line and the father wound and all of those things that really fed into all of these behaviors in such a perfect um a perfect way, really. My, my response to everything that occurred in life was perfectly appropriate uh, and therefore part of my overall healing journey. Then I think it was it was either freshman or sophomore year of of college. I think I was a freshman in college when I somehow discovered the book Skinny Bitch. And if you are in my age bracket, you probably know about this book. Fuck this book. It will not be in the show notes. <laughs> Please don't read it. Um this book, Skinny Bitch, came out on the market with some lith fashion illustration of a woman on the cover. And of course, I ate it up. I just wanted, I, of course, I wanted to be a skinny bitch. Who didn't want to be a skinny bitch? And the book was really, I do have to say, though, the book was really um, a blessing and a curse because although it did kind of indoctrinate me into thinking that being a vegan who eats literally no fat is going to make me some skinny, elitist, perfect woman. Um, it did introduce me to a lot of the fuckery that was kind of happening between, for example, the FDA and Monsanto and how all of the agriculture industries are just working all together and that the heads of these chemical companies are swapping places with the heads of the regulators who are supposed to be keeping us safe from poison and bad business practices and all of this stuff. So it really opened up my mind to how um, the system worked and how there were all of these artificial ingredients in food that weren't really food. Um, and yeah, it really did kind of spark my journey. So I suppose without this book, maybe I would have come into it in a different way, probably if it was my destiny. Um, but anyway, this was my path. So after reading this book, I started becoming more obsessed with ingredients and natural food and being vegan and vegetarian uh, and all this kind of stuff, which of course got me no nowhere because I didn't need any of that. I needed serious psychological reprogramming. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Uh, but there it is. And then in the second year of college, I really started struggling with bulimia, like really, really bad. Uh, that year, I had a dorm room with its own bathroom, which is just a death sentence because, you know, at least in communal housing, if you want to throw up, you have to throw up in the bathroom that the entire hall is sharing. And that is a tricky thing, let me tell you. So to have a room with its own bathroom, bathroom in it um, was just horrendous. Uh, And I even had a roommate too, who was, you know, a New Yorker. And our school was a metro ride away from the city. So she was gone a lot. Uh, So I really started struggling um, in that year. And it's kind of sad, really. I mean, you look back at the pictures and like you can totally tell like your face is all bloated. And it's not that you look fat. It's like you just look not well. It's like such a, a vibe. So sad. Anyway, Uh, And during these first couple years in college, uh, you know, it's like going home for the holidays was just a nightmare. I think I purged almost every Thanksgiving and Christmas for years. Um, And then at some point I worked with a nutritionist on campus who convinced me to take Xanax when I went home for the holidays because at least it would be better than purging. And the funny thing about the Xanax prescription is that I was really adverse to pharma, even from a very young age, Um, except for the first time. I think before I was even 16, uh, my family doctor gave me a sample pack of like some kind of antidepressant. And my mom gave me one and then refused to give me any more after that, which is absolutely a blessing. Um, And I totally am grateful that she did that. Um, Of course, you know, then, but then there was nothing else, right? So it's like, you're, it's very, it's, this is where people fall into the allopathic model because there is no support for the true healing. I don't want to call it an an alternative because it just is true or it's not. Um, But the alternative to allopathy uh, is not really supported. So you can imagine for a young child uh, desperately wanting to feel better uh, and then being offered this pill that's supposed to make it all okay. And then it's withheld from you and no other options are being presented. So what are you supposed to do with that? Um, So anyway, uh, yeah, I was very uh, adverse to pharma afterwards, probably especially after reading the Skinny Bitch book. Um, And then, like I said, the nutritionist convinced me to work with Xanax, at least while I was home, because it's better than purging, right? And I was like, okay, yeah, I guess so. I really want to quit purging. Um, But then the funny thing is... Then junior year happened, and uh, this is like so the thing, right? It's like this generation. Well, maybe it's not even generational, but it's like the the archetype who is like a purist and doesn't want to eat high fructose corn syrup and refuses to take medication. But then you totally go out on the weekends and mix together all kinds of fucking drugs, and you have no idea what they even are or where they came from. (laughs) Okay. But fine, right? This is the chosen healing expression. 
So junior year is really when things started to amp up for me because at that time I uh, was living in a house um, and there was a, a, a greater sense of communal identity kind of came together junior year. So I was in an art school where sophomore year you had to submit your work for portfolio review and basically like half of the students who entered into the program were going to get cut. Uh, So it was very competitive um, and you kind of didn't really know. It was almost like you weren't really sure who your friends were until that moment because there was this sense that like half of you were going to be gone halfway through the program. Uh, So in junior year, we were part of, you know, the remaining. We were like the chosen ones and the exceptional students. And so now this created our cohort. Um, And then junior year was also when I lived into the next kind of like level up of housing on campus where you were in like a multi-level house, shared house kind of a thing. Um, And I mean, in that environment, it was just party central. And of course, there was more mixing of the seniors with the juniors. And so you kind of had easier access to someone who could get you alcohol. um, And there are drugs everywhere, of of course. Um, And so this was when true debauchery just like totally unfolded. And it's really interesting to really think back on these years because our culture does this strange thing where it's kind of like we bully children through an education system that is not actually designed to teach them anything of value or support their natural abilities to learn within their own unique capacity. And then the family life is totally stressed out and not coherent and everything centers around stupidities like grades and basketball practice and like whatever. Um, And then as soon as the child starts to reach the breaking point and has no has developed no emotional maturity whatsoever, we send them off to go to higher education where they spend the next four years binge drinking and what for women getting raped in bathrooms and all of the other horrible things that happen. Um, so yeah, it's just like such, um, such a strange thing to kind of, to kind of observe, uh, especially now that more and more students are choosing, uh, degrees that they can't really support the cost for with the jobs that they are anticipating to get with these degrees, if they even get a job for the degree that they acquired. And anyway, now I'm going down a tangent about higher education. But I do think it is part of the root cause of a lot of the mental health healing expressions that we are seeing in children and young adults. So it's just something to think about. And again, I say mental health expression because these are the body's intelligent, yes, intelligent responses to the child's environment and to response to their needs not being met. Core needs, not like, oh, your mother and I worked two, out, two jobs each to put you in higher education. That's not a need. That's actually not a human need. So clearly as a culture, we need to massively reevaluate what we consider 
core needs of our children and young adults. Otherwise, these expressions will continue to proliferate. So what is next? Um, Yeah. And then senior year was kind of like my transition in between the young adulthoodness of college and transitioning into being a quote unquote complete whole grown adult who was about to enter into the workforce. Um, And that year was really pivotal for me because I really started to embody uh, what my chosen identity was going to be for the next decade or so. Uh, I was starting to really find my place and my gift in the arts, uh, in graphic design. I was interning at Nylon Magazine. Um, I don't know if any of you remember that magazine, but it was really cool at the time. Uh, I was an art director. I was the art director of the school's art magazine. I was just like on, right? Um, And really excited to be graduating with all of these accolades and potentially even springboarding into a really exciting career uh, in fashion in New York. Uh, But senior year, again, still deeply entrenched in my eating disorder, taking all kinds of drugs to party. Um, Alcoholism was, I think, really highlighted for me this year. Um, And of course, like I just have to say that like, Obviously, I was in denial that I was an alcoholic pretty much until maybe even like two years ago. (laughs) I don't know. Um, Yeah, actually, until not even until after I had fauna, which we which we will get into. Uh, And again, like the, the alcoholic, it's I have a lot of opinions about all this. So anyway. Um, Yeah, it was senior year, the whole alcoholism um, component to my addiction and my persona really started to come into shape. Uh, I mean, I I was drinking like an an entire bottle of wine was how I pre-gamed. So it it was very much a thing. (laughs) Um, And then my first year in New York uh, wasn't so intense. I don't, I don't remember it being so intense because I was living with friends um, and I didn't even have my own bedroom. Like I lived behind their bookshelf in Brooklyn on a mattress on the floor. (laughs) So I really didn't even have any privacy, which is a good thing for me. Um, And then, but then, you know, very soon after that, I got my first job. Uh, And then very soon after that, I found my own apartment in Harlem that I was very proud of. Uh, And it was the place that my boyfriend that I actually mentioned from high school. So I was still with the same boyfriend, even though it was kind of off and on um, during college, because like I said, college, oh, I didn't mention it. College was also when I started to really discover how I could self-destruct through horrific sexual practices. So that was a whole other layer that came into play. Somehow, um, my my original boyfriend from sweet 16 years and I ended up staying together or coming back together after breaking up and coming back, all that kind of drama. Um, and then he was going to move in with me into this Harlem apartment. That event ultimately didn't work out. And then when I asked him to move out, I was left alone, completely alone in this apartment for the first time in since like sophomore year when I had that dorm room almost practically to myself. Uh, And it became really evident really quickly that I did not know how to be alone, like not 
even for a minute. Like I would do anything to escape the sensation (laughs) of being in my own body with my own thoughts and my own trauma and my own emotions. Um, That was very evident. Uh, So alcoholism um, and bulimia ultimately were like running the show at this time, like really, really bad. Uh, Like, like getting like practically blackout drunk and then going to the supermarket and just buying tons of food and eating all of it and throwing up like just horrific, Um, which is actually quite dangerous because if you know what alcohol and purging does to your electrolytes and the heart, it's like very, very easy. There, there was a period of time where I definitely felt like I was walking with death. Um, I didn't really want to die, not in the way that I had when I was a, in, in the past, when I was a teenager, my depression was really bad. Um, but I, I was definitely walking with it and didn't know how to kind of pull away from the ledge. Now, the irony of this time period is that I actually was primarily um, restricting and was quite thin and was working in an environment that definitely promoted that image. And so and and in addition to that, I started feeling um generally unfulfilled with my career, uh, like strangely unfulfilled. It was like I had this dream job that I thought I wanted, but then I would find myself getting very depressed, uh, you know, at work. And anyway, so I started this side project called The Daily Dose, which was basically like an email newsletter that I had started sending out to like three people. And then like it ended up in the end having a mailing list of like over 50 or something like that. And I just thought it was so cool. Um, But it was basically a commentary on health and like cultural stuff uh like just 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 like run-of-the-mill pop culture health and wellness stuff and of course this is like incredibly ironic because I was not healthy at all (laughs) um but you know I, I I thought that because I intellectually understood certain things that then I had um alleged stand on in terms of kind of stepping into that kind of like hero persona. I thought I could heal everybody and save everybody and educate everybody. Uh, And my experience of New York culture very much supported this just in that I find that New Yorkers seem to think that they are like so smart and their politics are like so correct. And, um, you know, they're just where everything is at. And like, we were just so cool. And, you know, it's just like, anyway, so um, yeah, it really supported uh, this kind of like egoic experience of wanting to play the hero and let everybody know how superior I was because I ate organic and blah, 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 all of that kind of stuff. And again, I mean, this period was really valuable. It was almost like the skinny bitch initiation where, no, it that wasn't it, right? It, it wasn't the thing, but it was allowing me to kind of climb into new layers of awareness that there were there there was something else that we were missing in terms of like how our culture was operating and what we were eating and blah 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 so like even though yes my my initial health crusade was all about being a vegetarian and taking lots of supplements and chugging lots of water 
disorder, of course, while hiding an eating disorder behind closed doors, <laughs> it did, um, it did, like I said, help me continue on down the path into discovering deeper and deeper layers of awareness. So, so of course, ironically, to continue the irony, then during this time, because uh, I was struggling so much with purging, I started attending NIDA support circles. So NIDA is stands for the National Eating Disorders Association. And if you go online, you can find support circles that they host all over the country. It's very similar to, I think, going to like an AA um, support group or something like that, which is was kind of an interesting experience because... Because although in the beginning it was helpful, because at least I wasn't home binging and purging after work, um, there did there was a tipping point. There, there, you kind of arrive at a tipping point with these support groups, where by being in the support group, you actually just further solidify your identity with your diagnosis. Right. Like, for example, if you are to make this relevant for the audience, if you are on what you believe to be an infertility journey and then you join a support group for those suffering from infertility. And then all you do when you talk, when you meet up at these support groups is talk about how sad you are and your infertility. I mean, what do you think you're going to experience more of? (laughs) Right. So although the support group kind of like served its purpose, um, there was a time where it started to wane and my perspective on support groups and things like that started to shift, even though I didn't have the language that I do now to describe it to you. Right. I couldn't name it. Um, And like a turning point, a big turning point for me as well was when the trigger warning culture started to rise. So at some point, um, the groups became very concerned about triggers and triggering other people in the room. And so you couldn't use certain language. You couldn't talk about calorie counts. You couldn't talk about how much you weighed, which I kind of understand those things. Um, But then you couldn't even talk about like purging. Like it was like, oh, if you did something to hurt yourself, you couldn't name what it was. You had to just be generalized like, oh, and then I did something bad to me. (laughs) And it all started to feel very like childish and indirect and not helpful. Uh, And that's when I started to think that maybe the circles weren't for me. Um, Around this time was also when I discovered the eight-step recovery process. So this is what I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, and it's kind of what the uh, bonus content is based on. And I really loved the eight-step recovery process because like I said, it it wasn't, it was, it's obviously um, kind of runs parallel to the kind of 12-step alcoholic anonymous process, but it's more rooted in Buddhist principles. So this was one of my first gateways into spirituality. I mean, I did kind of discover some things when I was like the editor of my little blog, Um, but but the eight-step recovery um, process really helped me to wrap my mind around a framework that understood things like suffering being an inevitable aspect of the human experience, but also that sometimes we choose our suffering and we create our own suffering and also understanding that because of the nature of 
this experience and that change is the only thing that is inevitable that we can move through suffering. That is, it is not a finite state of being. So I think a lot of people with um, addiction expressions struggle with that, that like as soon as you feel a bad feeling, it engulfs you, it becomes you, it feels like it's this never ending experience that's just going to carry you forth into the abyss and you will never feel joy or happiness ever again. So to be introduced to the idea that change is inevitable and that su- therefore suffering is temporary really kind of expanded my way of viewing things. Even though, of course, I didn't fully embody all eight steps at the time, it was definitely a touchstone. Um, and normally I don't like to share resources that I haven't fully been involved with. But in preparing for this episode, I did find a website that really beautifully outlines the eight-step recovery process uh, and actually is accompanied by a book that is available for for purchase. Again, I haven't read this book. Um, But just uh, for the sake of introducing you to the eight-step process, I'll link to the website in the show notes so you can see what all of those um, steps entail. And I do think that it is helpful uh, not just for addiction, but for all different kinds of expressions and personal growth. So if that's something that's interesting to you, um, please check that out because it was really helpful uh, for me. So the next chapter of my life opened up into uh, my late 20s when I met... A man. <laughs> Isn't that how, how it always goes? So we'll just call him T. So I met um, a man. Uh, this was when I was starting to pull away from my, my sweet 16 boyfriend, mainly because I was waking up to a lot of things in terms of how the world worked and health and healing um, and especially vaccines. I started discovering things about vaccines that were just blowing my mind open. Um, and, you know, he, my boyfriend, he thought I was nuts, like just totally off my rocker. So that really started to create a huge shift uh, within our relationship. So I, I decided that I wanted to find something else. Uh, And then, of course, the first night that I go out into the world as a quote-unquote single woman um, who, yeah, decided that she was going to seek something else for her life, uh, I met this man. Or rather, I should say, he uh, found me, or rather, you could say, preyed upon me. (laughs) So there's there's something about being in co-creative relationships with narcissists is that you start to realize how um, even your passive energy becomes a huge component to the reason why these kinds of characters continue to be called into your life. I feel like in my 20s, there was a lot of talk about women being victims, like women are always victims of men and victims of misogyny and all of this stuff. And there is a time and a place to acknowledge that. But there were certain things that just did not sit right with me regarding that line of thinking, because ultimately I needed to see how I was participating in these dynamics of abuse in order to be able to choose to opt out of it. This is where victimhood can really become a trap because if you are a victim of something, it means you have no control. And 99% of us have control. Um, So anyway... 
So I met um, this man and he really opened up. Again, it was almost like the skinny bitch book where there was like this blessing and also a curse to the whole um, perfect experience of it all in that he really opened me up into a whole new way of living life. He was very connected with the Latin community and knew how to dance salsa um, and, you know, had this sort of like European just non-American approach to life in which every day of life was sort of treated as a vacation that you shouldn't need to take a vacation um, from your life, that your you, you your life should feel like the vacation. Uh, and as being somebody who was very hermity and committed to being alone in my apartment with my eating disorders and my alcohol, uh, he really opened me up to approaching life in a radically new way. Now, of course, he also ended up presenting as quite the alcoholic himself uh, and also chained smoke cigarettes like I've never seen anyone chain smoke cigarettes before, which is, of course, a habit that I adopted because why not? Um, even though, of course, I had to put my flair on it uh, and very proudly hand rolled my own organic tobacco cigarettes um, because duh. So <laughs> anyway, I'm in this uh, classic relationship, uh, codependent relationship with a narcissist. I move into his um, apartment within four months of dating, uh, basically completely abandoned my previous way of life. He got me to start eating meat again. Um, We went out a lot. It was like exploring New York in a whole new uh, way, which ultimately collapsed in on itself when I realized that all the money he was spending on me in the beginning of the relationship was money he didn't really have and he was actually totally broke and then I ended up spending two years of our relationship financially supporting him through my um, very lucratively paying jobs freelancing as an art director in advertising (laughs) so that is that and but the other big the big gift uh, from that chapter of my life is that uh By being in a relationship with a narcissist and then ultimately having to identify what was going on within that relationship, it allowed me to understand where narcissistic dysfunction was existing within my own family. It was as if being in a relationship, a romantic relationship with a narcissist was something that I was ultimately able to see, uh, whereas those dynamics within my family were a little bit trickier to identify, especially when the um, when the abuse that is occurring within the family is all being done within the name of family, like within this for the sake of family. It's like, oh, yes, well, this is because I love you or, you know, you just have to keep trying because it's family and family is the most important thing. And you're just kind of trapped in this like brainwashed, like confused state where it's like, oh, yes, it's family. Got to go back. It's family. Got to go back. Got to, you know, participate. And uh, and it's okay because it's, you know, so like it just it being having these these dynamics play out in a romantic relationship really cracked that wall open for me. Um, And I actually don't know how long it would have taken me to identify dysfunction within my family if it weren't for um, for tea. So, yeah. So luckily, I did not do that for very long. Um, 
at some point, I chose to move out of that apartment with him and got my own, um, rented my own room in Brooklyn and was kind of like back on my own again. Uh, luckily, at this point in time, that was the last time I ever purged. Uh, so I didn't really purge too much when I was in my relationship with him. Um, other things were going on. But then I moved out on my own and, you know, had an adjustment shock and then purged and like that was the last time ever in my life and I'll always remember it because it was such a specific um response to the the life changes that I was going through uh and it was also um kind of like one of those things where you're where you're actually done right it's like you're not pretending oh I'm done with this I'm never gonna drink again or like whatever it's like you're actually done with this thing like I I see you later I'm over it never gonna do this again I've exhausted this tool, you know, and it is a tool. It is a tool. Um, like I said in the beginning, uh, these are all tools, alcohol, drugs, cigarettes, food. They are all tools that help people cope with their life circumstances. We can label them as good or bad, effective or ineffective, sure, but they are tools. So then um, shortly after this, I decided that I wanted to choose life. Um, I really did. I, I was even in my new apartment, I was still kind of doing that stupid thing where you go back and you see the guy or you sleep over at his house. And then you say, why did I do that? And blah, blah, blah. So I hadn't fully like untangled myself from tea yet. And at some point, I knew that I really, really had to cut the cord. Um, and all while this was going on, I was kind of crushing on Alex at work for I don't know, I think it was like over an entire summer was when um, I noticed him. I don't remember who started working there first, but he was staff at J. Crew, and I was um, freelancing at J. Crew, and we were both on the creative team in marketing. And um, I started really crushing hard on him, like I hadn't since I don't know, like high school or something like that. Um, but I didn't really get involved because I knew that I was still committed to tea. And I, I just couldn't do that to him. I knew that there was something special about him where if I chose him, I needed to choose him. And that I couldn't do this effed up thing where I'm like messing around with multiple men because it makes me feel powerful. This was a dynamic that I had played out many times before. So at some point, I was finally able to be done with tea, and I chose Alex, and that is when our courtship began. Um, and it really was like choosing life. It, it probably was the happiest year of my life. You know, there were times when I thought my time with tea was some of the happiest years of my life in a weird way, even though it was very abusive. Um, but Alex was more authentically happy because I had chosen life. And it was so interesting to look back on because even though I was not in right relationship with light, and even though I was still smoking my cigarettes and I was drinking lots of alcohol and not sleeping enough and not honoring my cycles, I was was fully embodying my purpose in life at that time. I was living exactly where I had wanted to be living. I had like, I think in that, the beginning of our relationship, I had moved into some like incredible, like old, old school artist's warehouse loft in, in Brooklyn that like didn't even have, I mean, it was just all concrete floors and concrete walls. Um, and if you weren't in your little loft space in the winter time, the outer rooms were literally as cold as it was outside. Um, and we were 
were making these incredible projects together. Uh, so I was just like so fully expressive in my creativity and in my job. And I had chosen Alex. So I was like madly in love and so excited to be in a healthy relationship. Um, and there was something about that that really allowed me to thrive, even though I wasn't doing all of the health things and I wasn't all like obsessed with any of that stuff anymore. And I didn't realize it at the time, but then now looking back on it after all the struggles that my family has gone through in the past couple years, um, it, yeah, it has really taught me a lot about the impact of our emotional body on our our physical body and on our healing expressions. Now, could I have been able to maintain that lifestyle uh, indefinitely? Probably not because, you know, the mind does only do so much and the body does keep the score. And I'm sure eventually something would have arisen and I would have had to address it. Um, but I was signaling a massive up leveling, um, to my body by, by pursuing what I was pursuing at the time. And like I said, choosing Alex, which was ultimately choosing life and choosing the, the fact that I actually didn't want to fuck around, you know, for forever. And I wanted to have a family one day and be in a, in a co-creative relationship with an amazing man. And, and of course a year and a half, um, with Alex into my relationship with Alex, we got pregnant with Fauna and I had no idea how I had no idea when I was totally shocked. Um, but it, it was, I mean, you can't get any more symbolic than that. Uh, so then continuing on with the health journey, we're, we're almost there. We're almost going to get into the teachings about, um, about natural, the natural philosophy of healing, if you will. Thank you for bearing with me during this story. So during this time, I got into, uh, I chose a home birth um, because I had known about what was going on in the hospitals, et cetera, et cetera, um, but also discovered unassisted birth during my pregnancy, which I didn't really know was an option. Of, of course, because why would it be an option? Nobody ever talks about that as an option. Uh, and it allowed me to start embracing the idea that the body had a natural intelligence to it. That if we could bring life onto this planet without any interference 99% of the time, then what else can the body do? There's clearly a vast potential to the body's ability to create life and then also to heal after creating that life, what else can it do? And with no interference, right? Um, So that entered me into another layer of awareness. So shortly after giving birth to Fauna, um, I really still wasn't like totally well, right? Like this is when my health started going downhill because I was doing the thing where Alex is working and I'm home alone all day with a baby. And I also wasn't very good at feeding myself. Um, so I would kind of like almost not eat all day. Uh, and then I was, but I was also breastfeeding. And so I would get these crazy vertigo, dizzy spells and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, depressed and, oh, what could be wrong with mom? And it's just like, duh. I mean, now if you get into holistic postpartum education, it's just so obvious, right? Again, this is a healing response. This is an intelligent response to an environment that was not meeting my needs. Can you imagine if someone had just put me on antidepressants or like whatever? Do they have vertigo medication and then like not address what was going on in my life? But this is what we do. 
The other thing that was really notable about my postpartum experience that I want to be really transparent about because, well, there's got to be someone else out there who has gone through this and maybe is, is even harboring shame, which is totally unnecessary because, again, intelligent responses to your needs not being met in life. Um, I really struggled with the maiden to motherhood transition. There was a whole drama within my family about my mother blessing, which ultimately I chose to cancel because I chose to be a victim of my family's unhealthy dynamics. And so I didn't feel witnessed um, in transitioning from maidenhood to motherhood on top of the fact that I it was an unplanned pregnancy and I didn't even really think that I was quote unquote ready for motherhood. Um, and I also hadn't addressed a lot of things that needed to be addressed before I maybe ideally before I embarked on this kind of journey, namely that I was still struggling with the root causes of my addiction. Um, and at that point, uh, quitting cigarettes was very easy for me. As soon as I decided that I was going to bring fauna into this life, I quit cigarettes and it was just over. Um, I don't know what that was about, but uh, maybe it was the power of pregnancy hormones. <laughs> um, but alcohol was always still this lingering uh, substance that was just kind of plaguing my life. And I didn't really drink or anything during the pregnancy except for like a glass of wine a couple times um, during special occasions. But then postpartum, uh, after the first 40 days past, I started experimenting with bringing alcohol back into my life again, being totally unprepared for what that was going to be like. So sometimes when you're in it, when you're actively using the tool chronically, you don't really realize how bad it is until you try to separate yourself from that tool or then maybe separate yourself from it for a while and then come back to it. And then you realize with fresh perspective how affected you are by it. So in bringing alcohol back into my life after Fauna was born, uh, I basically collapsed um, it- without control, essentially, back into uh, excessive drinking. Not that I was drinking alcohol every day or anything like that, but if I went out to an event or if there was something going on, I immediately would just start binge drinking as if I was like 25 again. Um, And I did this really without being conscious. I did this while caring for my child, um, while wearing her on my body. Just things that other people would really, really severely judge um, and label me as a horrible, bad, alcoholic mom. Uh, and that's okay. I, I don't hold any shame over these experiences. And I'm sharing them with you so that you don't, maybe someone out there can see themselves in this story. Uh, so anyway, it, it took a couple really bad experiences of sort of blacking out um, and um, a couple times being hung, hung over and my milk sort of temporarily drying up where I had this massive wake up call that, oh my God, I can't do this anymore. I have a child. Why do I have this problem? It's actually a, wait, I have a problem, right? Like just like kind of connecting with now accepting that there is something that needs to be looked at here. Um, so that was a big part of my postpartum experience and also, yeah, started, starting to finally embrace uh, this potential label, if you will, that I was an alcoholic.
one of the ways in which I approached addressing these issues uh, was my work through To Be Magnetic. So if you follow me on Instagram, you know that I'm constantly talking about how incredible TBM is. It's the only um, affiliate partnership that I currently have and promote because it is a tool that I have actually used um, and explored every single corner of for the past three years. um, And it has truly massively improved my life. Obviously, you can tell through my story, I've had a handful of talk therapists and cognitive-based therapists and the support groups and just all kind of fucking therapy. And none of it really actually did much for me. But when I discovered TBM, the thing about it that really drew me into the work is that, yes, it's actually supposed to be about manifesting things into your life. It's a manifestation practice that's not rooted in new age rhetoric of positive thinking and writing yourself blank checks and all of that kind of stuff, even though some of those things can make for nice rituals. But what Lacey Phillips really teaches through TBM is that manifestation actually evolves out of our subconscious beliefs. So if on the surface level, you are looking in the mirror every day and saying, I'm worth a a six-figure job. I'm worth a six-figure job. I'm worth a six-figure job. But underneath of that, you actually don't really believe it. And you're actually hanging on to all of these programs and all of these experiences from childhood that reinforce that you don't actually deserve it. You're probably not going to get that six-figure job. So the reason why the the to be magnetic work really ends up being um, in addition to manifesting things into your life, an alternative uh, to therapy is because she uses a series of, um, well, there's themed workshops such as Inner Child and Shadow that hinge on journal prompts and uh, hypnotic meditations, guided meditations that help you to uncover and rewire these programs. In addition to then prompting you to take aligned action in your life that helps you connect with the visions that you're trying to manifest. So this work with TBM really started taking me into a new level of self-awareness and uh, talk therapy. Uh, And only a couple months into doing that work, however, 2020 unfolded. And now everything was being turned upside down. So one of the biggest gifts of 2020, other than um, me going through a whole initiation into true motherhood and true womanhood uh, for my path uh and 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 you know growing into what it really means to be sovereign in my body but the medical debate was getting all turned upside down because now everyone is arguing about what is a germ and do viruses even exist and all of these kinds of really radical conversations that really Um, if you were paying attention to it, hopefully walked away with a certain um, expanded perspective on what healing could be. So for example, one of the really cool things that I walked away from, I don't remember who taught this and I wish that I could, but there was the um, 
proposal, for example, that uh, sometimes when we express symptoms, for example, uh, like a, a runny nose, it might not even necessarily be because you quote unquote caught a germ, but because the body is aware that somebody else in your environment is healing and therefore your body is now producing mucus in order to protect it from having to quote unquote, catch the germ that somebody else in your environment has. So even just like exploring that idea that the body could preemptively be expressing symptoms to protect you from quote unquote being sick, like was starting that all, all of that stuff was really turning things um, on its head for me. And I really started to expand into um, thinking that maybe germs are not really what we think they are. Then in 2021, I entered into the School of Evolutionary Herbalism, uh, which is where I was introduced to the concept of vitalism. So vitalism is a perspective on life and the human body that understands that all symptoms are a language that can be followed in order to understand underlying patterns that are lying at the root cause of what we call disease. It is believed that the vital force or um, our spirit or our chi is capable of providing healing. It is the force that is the reason, the mystery, the mysterious reason why we are alive. And it's also the force that can be responsible for our healing. So underneath this um, perspective, it is understood that you want to use medicines that support this life force and facilitates the completion of your healing expressions, not depleting the life force and suppressing symptoms in a way that healing cannot be completed. Sage said in one of the classes, chronic suppression of acute symptoms leads to chronic disease. So chronic suppression of acute symptoms leads to chronic disease. So let's explore some examples. Now we're really getting into the meat and the point of me telling you this whole story, right? Where where have we arrived now after all these experiences and all of the dieting and all of the chugging of water <laughs> and all of these kind of, um, yeah, the, the chemical imbalance theories and blah, blah, blah. So I'm going to take you through uh, a few examples that can help you kind of like reorient how you approach uh, your healing uh, through this sort of lens. So let's start with something super, super simple, like a scab, right? A scab forms sometimes over a wound in a way to repair the tearing of your skin, Now, the scab is technically the symptom of you cutting open your skin, but the scab is also the healing. Now, if your child fell off their bicycle and skinned their knee and a horrific, ugly, itchy scab formed the next day, would you rip that scab off of your child and say, this is disgusting? This doesn't serve you. We are going to get rid of it so that this whole picture looks prettier for us, is more comfortable for us. No, you wouldn't do that. 
you understand that the scab is part of the healing. So can we apply this perspective to bigger healing expressions, expressions that we've been taught are scary? Let's go one one level up. Let's explore fever. Okay. Traditional, no, conventional approaches to fever is that the fever is bad. The fever is a symptom that tells us that the body is sick and therefore we need to bring the fever down. Initially, I was introduced to fever as being a response to a pathogen, which the body then has to fry out of its system by elevating its temperature to 101 degrees, which now, of course, makes no sense to me at all, because how can a 101 degree environment kill a bacteria? And how can it only kill one bacteria, but not any of the other millions of bacteria in the system when you have to boil water for 10 minutes to disinfect that? So, of course, none of this makes any sense. Um, But then if you think about how fever is also elevating the infrared heat within the body, which restructures the crystalline water and the extracellular space in the body, which facilitates detox and true healing, ah, now maybe the fever is making sense. And of course, like I said, as a natural philosopher, we have to assume that we know nothing and that there are other things that we will uncover about the intelligence of fever. But however you want to view it, if you want to view it as the um, body burning out a pathogen or if you want to view it as infrared heat restructuring the, the water and the cells in your body, either way, fever is the healing. The fever is perfectly designed to provide the environment that the body needs to complete a healing. So why would we lower the fever? Okay, let's try another example. You have irregular periods, or you have crazy hormones, or you have horrible PMS, or it's very painful when you bleed, or on and on and on. All of the problems that modern women have with their menstrual cycles. And then you go to a physician, and the physician says, we're going to put you on birth control, and it's going to make everything better. But what does the birth control do? The birth control shuts down your ovaries, prevents ovulation from occurring, essentially turns off a major hormonal pattern in the female body that is responsible for more than just a menstrual cycle, right? It radiates out into other areas of our health. And now all the symptoms go away and we say, they're all better. What were the symptoms actually trying to tell you about your body's needs? It's no different than a child cutting themselves or a postpartum mom developing depression and vertigo. Your body is signaling that its needs are not being met. So you can basically just keep carrying yourself forward with all of these examples. Uh, and I do believe that this philosophy also applies to mental mental health expressions, as I've already said. Um, even those who appear to be doing just horrible things to other humans, people with psychopathic expressions, people with narcissistic expressions, these are all intelligent coping mechanisms that the mind 
Ireland has manufactured in order to protect the individual from their own suffering. So shortly after going through the School of Evolutionary Herbalism and kind of getting a grasp on more vitalist principles and beginning to work with the plants, uh, who are incredibly intelligent beings who... um, can be used as a poison, uh, for sure, uh, but can also be used as a medicine to assist the vital force in completing healing expressions. Uh, I was introduced to the work of Dr. Cassie Huckabee, who is just incredible. I have taken two of her master classes at this point uh, and follow her on Instagram, and you should too if you want some refreshing inspiration about the healing process. Uh, Her work really just put a bow on top of everything that I had been gathering up and attempting to integrate uh, in my previous uh, you know, years of, of experience in, in my process. Uh, and then a more recent influence as well, taking me again to another layer of awareness was reading Joe Dispenza's You Are the Placebo, which really blew my mind open in scientifically illustrating just how powerful our thoughts are, our beliefs are, uh, the, the, the vast, infinite, um, and unknown potential of our genetics, which is the exact opposite of the mainstream narrative, which seems to uh, resist releasing the uh, idea that our genes are just sort of responsible for disease and our destinies and all of that kind of stuff. Um, uh, Our genetics are really uh, responsible for, like, I think uh, Bruce Lipton says, like, you know, less than 2% of our experience, uh, that actually it's our thoughts and our feelings and our beliefs that are responsible for our experience in that they are deeply connected to how our genes are expressed. And so that was a really pivotal moment of understanding for me as well. So you might be saying then, well, how does astrology tie into all of this? Because couldn't you just use astrology to um, diagnose or pathologize somebody? And yes, you certainly could if that was your approach to using astrology. So I wanted to be really clear about uh, how I approach astrology and how I think I think astrology ties into these philosophies on healing, which is basically to sum it up that the body is never sick. The body is never incorrect. The body is never broken. There is no such thing as a chemical imbalance or even half of the diagnoses on the market are just fucking made up words to identify a group of symptoms that an industry decides is to become an identity uh, or a label for a person, right? That the body is only ever healing. That's all it knows how to do. It truly is all it knows how to do. Even if you are eating junk food every single day and sitting in front of your TV and you weigh 500 pounds, your body is still healing. Even in that environment. It's the only reason why you are alive. Okay? And so everything that the body is doing is an expression of that healing. And you may not like it. And it may not be pretty. But it is for you. 
And basically, you can choose either to respond to those expressions in a way that can facilitate the completion of that healing so that it no longer requires your attention and is no longer a hindrance on your life. Or you can continue to ignore them and suppress them and work against them so that the the expressions need to get louder and more painful and more demanding. That's all that there is. It's actually phenomenally simple. When you start to really reframe how you view illness through this lens, everything becomes phenomenally simple. There is no fear. There is no panic. There is no scrambling. There is no dying for a diagnosis. There is no try these meds, and then when they don't work, try these ones. And then when you have side effects, add these ones in. There is none of that. There is just working with the natural phenomenon of the human spirit and the human body, which is a perpetual timeline of healing. That's it. So how does this work with astrology? So the way that I view... The art and the study, I am a student of this, not a master, of medical astrology is that it is an understanding that in the same way that we are impacted and imprinted by our environments, electromagnetically, through light, etc., if we can be influenced by that impact in the human on the human plane or the earth plane then we can also experience an impact through similar energetics coming from cosmic energetic bodies so to simplify it at the moment of your birth the placement of all the astrological bodies in the sky the ethers had an energetic influence on your physical, your physiology, your physiology, your psychology, your emotional body. Uh, they also uh, have um, have an impact on you during gesta- gestation. Uh, that can be a whole other discussion. Sometimes they can be uh, representative of karmic uh, contracts or stories or um, karmic purposes, however you want to look at that, which is another reason why I do think some children come through at very specific times. If they are souls that need to come here to complete certain karmic contracts and they specifically are choosing to do that through you and your story and your energetics, then they may um, be waiting for that appropriate window in which their energies are going to be influenced and reflected in the cosmos. So all of these placements have an impact on your physiology, right? They are looking at the natal chart is a way to further understand how your unique physiology is going to be more likely to express healing. It's really kind of no different than other languages of medical awareness, such as traditional Chinese medicine or 
Ayurveda or Greek uh, Arabic medicine, right? They all have uh, um, a framework or a language through which they can understand the human experience. It's just like using earth, air, fire, water, and ether, the elements, as a way to categorize um, physical matter or activities or experiences or the directions or any of that kind of stuff. So when I look at someone's chart, I can see where the energetics have been projected onto their physiology so that we can start to understand how their body is choosing to express its healing. It's kind of like when, you know, two people are in the same um, stress-inducing environment and one person heals by getting terrible stomach issues and another person heals by getting terrible headaches and blood pressure vertigo issues, right? It's because they have their own unique energy that is influencing how their body communicates. So what's really cool about looking at the natal chart is that it becomes a deeper um, layer of awareness into your own constitution and your own... um, body's sort of methods of expression and how you can facilitate bringing balance into that energetic body through planetary remedies, elemental remedies, working with plants uh, that are governed by specific planets uh, within your chart, uh, things like that. And really, ultimately, what the natal chart ends up providing for for women is um, I keep I just I don't know how to describe it other than I keep saying the same thing that it's kind of like coming home to yourself. It's a way to sort of walk yourself back home to the body, to your own unique experience so that you can like physically see in the graphic illustration of your natal chart and understand the how and why of your unique expressions. Now, of course, it can only take you so far, right? Like you are then responsible for peering more deeply into how you heal and where you're suffering and what lifestyle choices um, fortify you versus deplete you and all of these kinds of things. And then you have to choose to make change. Right. So if we if we can walk away from any walk away with any thing from all of this, it's that true healing requires true change. I didn't walk away from addiction and from eating disorders because I took a pill or uh, or St. John's wort supplement even or. Even 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 the talk therapy and and the support groups, right? Like none of that was really what actually did it in the end. It re- it required a true expression in every corner of my life that reflected my authentic, unique purpose and spirit. And that's not necessarily what everybody is going to need because every path is unique. But 
depending on what healing expression you're confronted with, you are going to probably have to make changes that are far more involved than just working with even a, a herbal tincture. Okay, and this is why a lot of people don't want to heal. Even people who, um, you know, are step into the quote unquote natural wellness space, when they're confronted with this level of information, they can't do it. I don't know about that. Well, it's too much work. All the excuses start pouring forth because it requires true change. So all this is to say is that you are incredible. Your body is incredible. You are capable of vast, phenomenal abilities that we haven't even truly tapped into yet as a culture due to how limiting our views and our beliefs are about the human experience. And we are going to talk a little bit more about how all of this plays into specifically infertility and IVF. That is going to be perhaps, I think it will be the next episode. So that's why I just wanted to introduce you to to this as um, a generality, right? This is the primer. So if you can understand, if you can follow this information, then we can get into specifically how this can apply to an infertility journey and why things like IVF are actually not serving women, nor are they serving the children that are manifesting through that process. (sighs) Well, that was a lot. I talked for a lot longer than I thought I would. If you listen to the whole thing, man, I really appreciate you. I really do. Um, I hope that the storytelling aspect was helpful uh, and not annoying. Um, But either way, it doesn't matter. Wherever you jumped into the conversation, I hope you took something away from this discussion. Uh, Again, in the show notes, there's going to be... um, a little mini roadmap, including uh, journal prompts to help you untangle how you may be uh, committed to the suffering in your life. And again, replace the word suffering with whatever it is that you are being served um, as, as a mirror for this point in your journey, whether it is that you are you can't have a baby, but you want to, whether it's that your cycles aren't healthy, whether it's that you have a quote unquote autoimmune expression, whether it's that you claim that you hate your job, but you've been there for five years and are totally feeding into that drama, whether it's that your partnership doesn't look the way that you want it to, whatever, again, fill in suffering, fill in the blank. How are you committed to this struggle in your life and really untangling um, and untangling some of those stories so that hopefully you can move forward and view whatever the suffering is as a gift to you, that it is here to serve you, to help you move forward and heal and ultimately thrive. We do want to get to a place in which we feel that we're thriving, right? Healing is always happening and yet it is not something that we necessarily need to be conscious of, okay? You can be on the hamster wheel of trying to heal indefinitely and it probably won't serve you. 
Okay, well, that's it for today. I would love to hear from you um, and just know how you received this medicine. Um, maybe you have a story to share as well. Like I said in the beginning, consider being a paid supporter of Cosmic Conception so that we continue having these discussions and doing this work. Uh, and if you do subscribe to that, uh, you'll get access to the bonus material, which will be uh, in the show notes. So I'll see you guys next time. Mm-hmm.